The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. The, the talent that poets have is that they just remember in some deep atavistic part of themselves, like the meanings of those words and their provenances and their connections and they have this instinctive i mean i have an almost mystical belief in this language is our collective knowledge we're not aware of those things consciously for the most part but but we but we know that we know it yeah somewhere and poets are just people who know it to have a deeper sense of those things i think and it just cracks me up when i was you know people say like you know they they think that what makes somebody poet is that they're more sensitive than other people emotional it's like it's like no i mean most of the poets i know are monsters you know they're, they're completely like they're completely jerks and they're not more emotional or sensitive or, or or whatever than other people i mean and it's it's that they it's this it's it's it has to do with their relationship to language that's matthew zapruder discussing the special relationship that poets have to language we'll talk to the poet and professor about his new book why poetry today on the history of literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the program. I'm Jack Wilson. We have an incredible show today. Matthew Zapruder is here. Matthew's a professor. He was the editor of the New York Times Magazine's poetry page. He's written four books of poetry himself, and he has some ideas. Ideas that mean something, especially for those of us who love literature and who love poetry, and who are maybe a little bit confused. Confused at why poetry has the particular reputation it does, at least here in America, at least in the wider culture. I don't think we really get poetry. We as a culture, we as individuals, we're not absorbing it in the way we could be. Matthew has identified three reasons for why that might be, and he has some solutions for what will help us out. Let's bring poetry back, people. Let's revive it. Let's reanimate it. Let's stand breast to breast with the cosmos and open our hearts and our minds and our souls and let poetry come rushing in like spiritual waters, like that long-awaited flood. The cleansing that shall be ours. I, oh, excuse me. What a what a time for an interruption. Oh boy, must be someone who hates poetry is here. <laughs> who is it? Hello. Hello, I'm Emily Dickinson. Oh, well, I've written Emily. a poem in honor of that impudent scallywag, Jack Wilson. A new poem. Here it is. <laughs> My life has stood a loaded gun. In corners till today, I listened to his podcast and sent him some money. Won't you please support the cause of literature and the arts? Oh my, Emily Dickinson, how appropriate. She must have heard us talking about poetry and wanted to chip in with a brand new poem. Just ignore the part where she goes all commercial. <laughs> That's the thing about Emily Dickinson. Nice person, good poet, total sellout. I'm kidding, of course. But what I'm not kidding about is my appreciation for those of you who have chosen to support the show with your hard-earned dollars, or maybe they were rubles when you earned them. And maybe they weren't so hard-earned. Maybe they were won in a game of chance. Like our old friend... Dostoevsky. Roulette. That was his game. Well, if your roulette wheel has come up lucky and you're in the mood to share your good fortune, why not head on over to patreon.com literature and join the club of patrons who are helping to make the History of Literature podcast possible. At Patreon, you can sign up for a monthly donation using PayPal or a credit card, and you can give in whatever increment you like, small or large. Or you can make a one-time donation at historyofliterature.com slash shop by buying me a virtual coffee. Buy me a coffee, buy me a beer, buy me a... Let's see. We have W.H. Auden today. Buy me a martini, of course. 
We all remember his lines from symmetries and asymmetries. Could any tiger drink martinis, smoke cigars, and last as we do? I don't know the answer to that. I suspect William Blake would have had something to say about that or something to roar. No, I don't know the answer, but I do know this. I very much appreciate each and every one of the patrons, along with all the other emailers and tweeters and everyone else helping to make this show a possibility. Speaking of great shows, we have a great one today, Matthew Zapruder. And Mike Palindrome will be back soon, for for those of you fans of his. He'll be back with a deep dive into Franz Kafka's classic short story, The Hunger Artist. So sign up now and tell all your friends to subscribe to you won't want to miss our spring lineup. Okay, before we get to the conversation, I wanted to thank again our literature students from a few episodes ago and their wonderful teacher, Ms. Anne-Marie Sheehan, for submitting their questions for our recent episode, the Q&A. That was fun. And I found myself very touched and inspired by these students. For those of you just joining us, Ms. Sheehan teaches in New Mexico at Highland High School which the state has designated as, quote, failing, end quote. Ms. Sheehan's friends wonder why she wants to teach there. Why not move to a more affluent school, they ask. The reports about the school, written by outsiders, talk about gang-related incidents, the high dropout rate, minimally effective teachers, that's another quote, and they portray the students as low-income students, immigrants, children of immigrants, refugees, well, God damn it! these are my people. These are the people I'm rooting for. We all should be. It's so easy to learn when the conditions are perfect. Try learning when the walls are crumbling around you, when you're working to help your parents make ends meet, when your family members are working two jobs or are sick or in jail or have disappeared, when you yourself are hungry. Try going to school then. Try opening a book and concentrating then. I'm telling you, in my mind, these kids are heroes. So I want to thank them all and cheer for them. And here's what we're going to do. I'm sending a copy of today's book, Why Poetry? The book we'll be discussing today with the author. I'm going to send a copy of that to their teacher, Ms. Anne-Marie Sheehan. And I think it will be obvious after I talk to Matthew why this book in particular is one that any teacher who cares about literature, as Ms. Sheehan does, and who cares about her students as Ms. Sheehan also does, will be glad to have a copy of this book. I'm going to include some history of literature gear in there too, a little care package of thank yous, and I wanted to thank each of the students by name, by first name. So here we go. I hope I'm getting these pronunciations right. My thanks go to Amethyst, Armando, Angelica, Anna Claire, Gyro, Guadalupe, Juan, Edgar, Leslie, Ramiro, Daniel, Esther, Jason, Esmeralda, Connie, Tommy, Jack, Owen, Rhiannon, <laughs> Fleetwood, little Fleetwood Mac there, Julia, Fernando, Alexis, Antonio, Bachua, Skyla, Kwong, Jesus, Tatum, Geja, Eric, Danielle, Serenity, Naxaya, Edgar, Kevin, David, Jose, Francisco, Adal, Rosalba, Sara, Jocelyn, Janisha, Natalia, Beatrice, Flor, Cipriana, Ivan, Carlos, Isabella, Nina, Jackson, Estefany, Zachariah, Ismail, Marion, Ricardo, Shirley, and last but not least, America. My thanks to all of you, young people, the future, and I wish you all the best. I'm glad you are working hard and fighting the good fight and I hope you find much success in your lives. And somewhere on your journey, when you look back, I hope you remember your teacher, Ms. Sheehan, who cared about you deeply. And I hope you find room in your busy, successful lives to read now and again, maybe a novel, maybe some poetry, and try to stretch your minds and become the best version of yourself that you can possibly be. We are all rooting for you. Matthew Zapruder, after this.
Hello everyone, this is Jack here to tell you about a way to eat better and easier. That's right, Factor. And they're delicious, ready-to-eat meals. These things are amazing. Chef-crafted, always fresh, never frozen. All you do is heat them up and you're ready to go. No prepping, cooking, or cleanup. And you get something healthy, nutritious, and tasty. I love Factor meals, especially on those days when I'm in the office. They're better for me than snacks or junk food, and much cheaper and faster than buying my lunch at a restaurant. You can choose options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, Keto, and you can change your schedule to get as much or as little as you need every week, whatever suits you and your family best. Head to factormeals.com literature50 and use code literature50 to get 50% off. That's code literature50 at factormeals.com slash literature50 to get 50% off. Hey, grown-ups! the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the cat in the hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the cat in the hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now is poet and professor Matthew Zapruder, author of four poetry collections, and whose work has appeared in The New Yorker, The Paris Review, Tin House, and The Believer. He has written, written about, edited, taught, and won awards for poetry for many years. And his most recent book, Why Poetry, argues that the way we have been taught to read poetry is the very thing that prevents us from enjoying it. Matthew Zapruder, welcome to the History of Literature podcast. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Okay. So this is such a provocative book, and yet it felt very necessary to me. I just kept thinking how somewhere along the way our society has developed this attitude about poetry. And as you point out, people often say, I don't understand poetry, and yet people still write it and read it, and they have opinions about it. And it didn't used to be this way. It seems like it poetry used to be viewed as something more accessible and available to all people. So I hope we can unpack this today and figure out this disconnect. Uh, but I was—I thought we might start with you. So when did you realize that you enjoyed reading poetry? Well, that probably happened a little bit before I started writing it. So I, I, I tell the story in the book, but I, I wasn't, I had a couple of encounters with poetry when I was younger that I, that were very powerful to me, you know, when I would read a poem and it meant a lot to me. And then I immediately forgot them those mm-hmm. encounters. Uh, and then I was in my 20s and I was studying uh, for a PhD in Slavic languages and literatures at UC Berkeley. I was, um, you know, I'd studied Russian literature in college and lived in the Soviet Union for a year. And, you know, that was sort of my field. And I wanted to go back to school. Of course, I, I knew I needed to get some further education. And this was what I did, but I was sort of ambivalent about it. And then when I got there, I I was I was studying a lot of poetry, Russian poetry, mm. um, and so I kind of that was my first sustained exposure to textual analysis and sort of the scholarly approach to um, poems. But I was also I was kind of more interested in what these ideas about poems were bringing up in my mind. And at the same time, I was starting to write poetry a little bit. Um, I got I just for some reason. I just decided I wanted to be a writer. That was what I really wanted to do. And yeah. I started writing and I, what I started writing was poems. It was very surprising to me. And, and so when that happened, I sort of went out in search of 
the poetry that was happening then. And there was a kind of a cool scene in Berkeley. You know, there was this great bookstore called Cody's Books that had this amazing reading series and people would come like, yeah. uh, you know, like, like Gary Snyder and Bob Haas and Adrian Rich. And I think Adrian Rich came up. I mean, people, you know, really, really, really famous, amazing poets would come yeah. and read for an audience of 30 or 40 or 50 people upstairs in this bookstore. And so I saw a lot, a lot of really cool readings and saw some stuff on campus. And so, so it was all kind of happening at the same time. Reading and, and writing were, were, were linked for me. Right. So you, when you were reading the Russian poets, uh, and then you made the decision to, to sit down and start writing, you didn't know that, uh, that you were, you didn't sit down and say, I think I could be a poet. I think I could write a poem. You just sat down and started writing and poetry caught you by surprise. Yeah. I mean, it's a little hard to remember. Yeah. <laughs> that was quite, but, but I mean, what, what I, what I remember doing very vividly is at a certain point I had t- talked for a long time about being a writer and I played music and bands and I had sort of been around artists and writers in various ways, but I myself had not really done any writing, yeah. significant writing. And I thought I, I, what I really want most in this world is to be a writer, but and and you know i even being young and kind of stupid i knew that one thing was true that unless i actually wrote something i wasn't going to be a writer <laughs> so i so i said i guess i better try to write right and so i remember very vividly in my first year of graduate school i would sit at my desk uh and just try to write mm. and what i wrote turned out to be poems it was very surprising. I think I, I don't know. I, I've never really been that interested in telling stories. I've never written stories or God, God knows a novel. Yeah. Um, I read a lot. I'm, I'm very interested in fiction, but I just don't do that. It's not my thing. And then, um, and I think maybe essays a little bit I would write, but I was writing a lot of that kind of critical prose. So I don't think I was very drawn to that either. I mean, I think if I had, I known, had I had a better sense of what an essay could be, maybe I would have been more drawn to that. But for, in my mind, that's that was more, you know, related to like maybe journalism or or the sort of scholarly writing I was doing. So I was I wasn't really very interested in that. And yeah, I really liked the poems that I was reading. These Russian poems, and they were very beautiful, and mysterious. And I think I just started writing poems. And maybe maybe in my mind, it was also kind of linked with song lyrics. Mm. Um, no, I think those are very different things. Somehow that there's something, but I, I think there's a deeper thing than that, to be honest. And it has to do with, um, with the whole point of the book, why poetry, which is whatever was going on in my superficial mind or my conscious mind deep inside me, I had this attraction to language yeah. and words. Yeah. I always loved words. I loved learning foreign languages. I loved diagramming sentences. I loved wordplay. I loved the material of language. I loved just words. I don't know why. That's just what I like. Yeah. And um, I'm attracted to it. I think I have an instinct for it. And I think I just, when I started messing around with the blank page, what I was really interested in doing was kind of playing with the material of language and seeing what what further meaning could be made. I don't think I was as interested in like, the mechanisms of storytelling or the mechanisms of character or world building or the mechanisms of, you know, following through an idea like you would in an essay. I think I was interested in playing with words on yeah. the, on the basic level. And I think that is what poets really are interested in. You know, that's where it begins. Yeah. You tell a, a really vivid story in the book about when you encountered a poem by W.H. Auden when you were, I guess you were still in high school. Yeah, I was a senior in high school. Yeah. And, but it, it was clear the way the words resonated with you when you were reading that poem. Yeah. I mean, I just kind of geeked out on like the, 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 the syntax of it. Yeah. I think I talk about the, the, you know, the, the first, lines of the poem have a, this kind of cool inverted syntax um yeah. about suffering the old masters they were never wrong and it's like i think i just i was like wow what is what is that like why do i like that one yeah. and, and i think it you know in the same way that if you're learning a foreign language you can be kind of excited about oh that's how that's the order they say it in like why do they say it that way as opposed to the way we say it and what would that word those you know just Things like that are, are maybe 
of no interest to a person. Yeah. Or they might be very interesting. And, the, and, and to me, they were very interesting. And I, I can't really say why, but that's just, you know, part of me, I guess. About suffering, they were never wrong, the old masters. How well they understood its human position, how it takes place while someone else is eating or opening a window or just walking dully along. How, when the aged are reverently, passionately waiting for the miraculous birth, there always must be children who did not specially want it to happen, skating on a pond at the edge of the wood. They never forgot that even the dreadful martyrdom must run its course anyhow in a corner, some untidy spot where the dogs go on with their doggy life and the torturous horse scratches its innocent behind on a tree. In Bruegel's Icarus, for instance, how everything turns away quite leisurely from the disaster. The plowman may have heard the splash, the forsaken cry, but for him it was not an important failure. The sun shone as it had to on the white legs disappearing into the green water, and the expensive, delicate ship that must have seen something amazing, a boy falling out of the sky, had somewhere to get to and sailed calmly on. It's interesting you use the foreign language example because it does seem like uh, poets and people who fall in love with poetry, a lot of times it's the musicality or I guess it's like the Robert Frost quote of hearing the sounds as if through a door. You can follow that and enjoy that even if you're maybe not aware of what it would technically be called or what its form, what its poetic form actually is. But... I, I can remember having the same reaction to that poem, actually. I think I read it in college, but it was, you know, about suffering, they were never wrong, the old masters. And you you describe it as a delayed entrance of these old masters. And I didn't know who the old masters were. I didn't know they were painters. I sort of was was learning about that kind of thing. But it still, it just, it drew me right into the poem, and it made me yeah. uh, sort of picture them. And then uh, I kind of remembered I had this... A cigar box when I was a kid, and it had Dutch masters on it, and it had these <laughs> these pictures of these guys. And I sort of I put those two together, you know, and I kind yeah. of could imagine uh, these 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 wise figures who just sat around and pontificated on things. And it all I think it's almost better. I think it's almost <laughs> better if you don't know that he's talking about painters. Yeah, right. And I think in a way he. Even though literally, of course, he means the paint. That's like old masters. That's a term, as we know, for yeah. for the painters. But I think he means it in a more general sense, also. Mm-hmm. And that's why the is just about painters. It's about authority. Yeah, it's about about an old structure of knowledge that that is that is disintegrating or, or or troubled or something. And you know, and 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 that that's that's what a lot of you know modernist work is about. Yeah. And I mean, that's why I might call Auden a modernist, you know, even if his work itself isn't necessarily, you know, formally, you know, as radical as some of the, some of his contemporaries. But, but I mean, yeah, that, that modernist sensibility, I guess. Right. You know, you don't know that stuff when you first read it. You're just responding to the way it, the poem is working for you as a reader. And, and I mean, I think now that we're talking about, it, you know, so much emphasis is put in reading poetry on what you need to know and, Yes. And, and that background and context and all that kind of stuff. And all that stuff is important. And I mean, I, I, I mentioned, you know, Harold Bloom in the introduction and kind of tweak him a little bit because I think he is so, he so emphasizes that idea that, you know, you yeah. have to have all this knowledge. And but I think actually the opposite is true in a way. It's like the, the, the lack of context, the lack of knowledge might, might, might add to the reading experience in that because you take those words, old masters, you did and I did, so like on their own terms. They don't right. refer to some other thing. They mean something more primal and basic to us. Um, and then, yeah. of course, when you know the other context, you can have that experience too. It's not mutually exclusive. You, know, you can it, add to the feeling. And it seems like Auden knew that. He could have said about suffering, they were never wrong, Bruegel and his peers. You know, great painters or something or yeah absolutely he chose those words because they would have that they would bring that along with them yeah 
I think that's what I mean by symbolism. When I, when I talk later in the book about symbolism, that's what I mean by symbolism. I mean the kind of way that words can become both specific and also abstracted into this kind of larger sense, you know? Mm. So old masters, it's a kind of symbol. Yeah. It's, 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 it has a literal meaning, uh, but it's also like it expands like outside of its co context into some greater, uh, greater possibility, greater potentiality meaning that can be filled in with emotional response. Yeah. And that's what happens with those, with those words. And so it's, 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 and I think it's interesting that you tell its story because it's, it's, you know, you and I had a very similar experience with yeah. it. Not, a lot of people have. Now, are you, is when you're saying that the way we've been taught to read poetry is the very thing that prevents us from enjoying it. Are we kind of getting at that here with the, the illusions or uh, I'm imagining a student, you know, who comes to this poem and starts reading it and enjoying it. And then a teacher informs the student, uh, well, actually you don't, you don't know anything about Bruegel or the old masters. And so you can't really understand the poem and the student thinking, well, I thought I got something out of it, but I guess maybe I didn't. Is that kind right. of in a nutshell, what we're talking about here that I think that's part of it. Yeah. yeah. It's part of, part of it. I think also that, um, so that idea that, you know, the only way you could, really appreciate or understand a poem is if you have all this uh, contextual knowledge and like the, you know what every reference is referring to and you know all the you know whatever like mythologies and histories and all that kind of stuff that is that that, that are behind things that happen in poems uh that you that you that those things aren't just like they don't just deepen your experience they're essential to your experience with the poem mm. like that that's mm -hmm. that's one thing i think that is that's a problem i also you know on a more just basic level i think that we're taught that the words in poems are not that they don't mean what they seem to mean oh and that's just a very common experience i think when people are taught poetry I and mean, it's 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 really something i've come across over and over again as a teacher yeah uh, and just as talking to people about poetry that they're just told that these, uh, you know, it's the language of poetry is inherently coded. Right. And it just is not, that's like factually incorrect. It's just not true for right. the most part for poetry. Right. Um, it's occasionally true, but it's mostly not true, but people think it's true. And so they're reading the poem and they're just filled with this doubt about whether the actual words on the page mean what they understand them usually to mean. And if you, and that right there is going to short circuit any experience you have. Yeah. You know, so you can't leave your eyes, you know, basically. So it's so, and then, and then you immediately are just looking for some other code coded explanation for what's going on. Yeah. And then I've always seemed to have this experience too. And then you sort of, sometimes you can look in vain to find where the poet actually says anything about this or, or even suggests that that's what they had in mind. And then you realize that, you know, what you're thinking about is the critic and the act of criticism okay. and the, the creativity of the critic in imposing this meaning on uh, the, the words on the page. And you kind of feel like, well, I was, was kind of hoping to read this poem by this poet and instead I'm getting this right. filtered through whatever's been layered on top of it. Right. I mean, so we've talked about two problems now. I mean, one problem is this problem of like, you know, how much preparation or context you need to read a poem and whether that's like uh, you know, again as I said before, that that can be additive and deepening, but to but to but to say that it's required required or or before you even encounter the poem i think it's just not correct and the second thing we're now we're talking about is this sort of idea of like that the language of poems is inherently coded i think most critics of any sophistication uh would not would would not talk about poems that way but i think unfortunately there's a lot of you know on, on the sort of secondary school level or even earlier yeah. or whatever there's a lot of that kind of teaching that goes on mainly because i think that just people you know, they don't know how to teach poetry. They're not prepared for it. It's not their specialty. And so they fall back on that as like a kind of way of teaching that and, and it sort of gets perpetrated. And and so part of what I'm trying to do now is I'm I'm starting to talk to more high school teachers and 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 meet with them and visit classes and stuff and see how poetry is actually taught and 
what's going on in there and whether there can't be some ways of of like approaching it differently that open things up a little bit more and i have i have a lot of ideas about that but i want to do that in collaboration with that people who are actually in the classroom and have those pressures on them i mean i think the third thing that we haven't mentioned yet is this sort of idea that every poem has to have a big message or some kind of significance or some kind of, you right. know, like, like deep, like significance with a capital S, maybe yeah. all the letters capitalized with significance, <laughs> you know, that's, that it's some big message and that you're supposed to take away some big idea. And, you know, I don't, I, I, I try to, in the book to really focus more, much more on the experience of reading the poem and what it does to your mind and what it does to your, thinking and 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 how how you move through the poem as opposed to just treating it like a kind of yeah. content or message delivery system yeah and and that, so those those three things are really they're they're pretty powerful you know interference with yeah. reading poems and so i try in the book to remove them as much as possible and then and then and then move into some different ways of talking about poems you know it's sort of a third or half the way through the book, I try to shift into more like, this is what I think you should be doing instead of, instead of succumbing to those kinds of ideas about it. Right. So I started this podcast and it's been kind of this running theme of is literature dying and is literature on the wane? And, you know, people ask me this all the time. Like, what, what do you think? Do you think we'll still read books and do you think we'll still read literature at 50 years from now? Will literature even still be around? And, you know, everyone points to the era when Gore Vidal and Norman Mailer were on Johnny Carson at night and the cultural relevant, uh, relevance of novels and sort of says, you know, it's it's fading away. The Internet's taking everyone's attention. We connect with people in different ways now and, and all of this. And when I ask authors, the main thing that they have pointed out is they'll say, well, it's not going to disappear because we tell stories. Human beings tell stories. We're we're a storytelling creature, and as long as we have, uh, as long as we're human, we will have this need for stories, and and that literature in some form or another will survive. But your book had a paragraph that kind of blew me away because it reminded me that poetry maybe has something different going on than fiction. And I'm going to read the paragraph if you don't mind. The power of the activated material of language and poetry can only fully be pursued when the writer is not ultimately preoccupied with any other task, like storytelling or explaining or convincing or describing or anything else. In their poems, poets do those things, but only as long as it suits them. A poet is always ready to let them go. Every true poem is marked somewhere by that freedom, and that choice to be ready to reject all other purposes in favor of the possibilities of language freed from utility, is when the writer becomes a poet. You talked about this earlier when you said you sat down, you didn't really have an interest in telling stories, but you wanted to be a writer and had an interest in writing. It's kind of simple to say poetry is about language and novels is about storytelling, but I'm interested in this this poetic state of mind or this space that you need to be in. And, and what exactly... Is it? What is it that <laughs> that poets are trying to do, and how would you describe what a poet is is doing if they're not convincing or describing or storytelling or explaining? Well, the poets do do those things. Yeah. Of course, they do. They must. I mean, it's 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 part of the structure. I mean, the poem isn't just a bunch of words thrown on the page. It has a kind of. But I think what I was trying to say in that paragraph, and I mean, I, I've gotten you know a fair amount of pushback. Oh, really? About that idea. Yeah, well, I, because because I think that people right now are so into this idea of literature as a kind of like instrument of yeah. change. Oh, yeah. You know, how is literature going to help fix the incredible problems we face? I understand that. And it's not, and that even makes it sound too intellectual. I think there's just people who feel so, so many people who feel so deeply that they they cannot imagine extricating any significant activity they do from their commitment to social justice and social change. Yeah, and that 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 makes sense to me. Like I understand that. Um, I think the danger is that poetry will turn into prose. Right. 
that's not as big a danger as global warming, (laughs) but it's, but you know, but it's, uh, or, you know, racial violence, you know, my, my point is simply that like really what poems are about, in my opinion, is about freedom and play. Yeah. They are anarchic. You know, they don't respect good behavior or being told what to do or, or, or anything. And I think there's a kind of spirit of disruption and play and, an interest in and almost almost like I don't want to say nihilism, that's not really the right word, but almost like kind of amorality in a way, like in, in, in the interest in the material of language itself. It's like the way that a painter just likes paint. Painters, you know, painters get to just like paint. They get to just like paint. They're allowed to do that. You know, like yeah. musicians get to just like music. They get to pick up their instrument and play it and and just play the music and like the way it sounds and be into it. Right. Like I kind of feel like poets it's very important that that poets permit themselves that relationship to words or if they don't then they won't write poems that have that are meaningful as poems as opposed to just sort of like you know lyricized prose. Right. So maybe poets shouldn't be asked to justify and explain all the words they choose when the reasons for explaining the words or the reasons for selecting the words or putting them in that particular order might be something inexplicable. Yeah. And I mean, but on the other hand, I mean, you're not going to read a poem that you feel like doesn't, I mean, nobody's really going to care about a poem that doesn't, you know, strike some deeper chord in them. If I can use like a kind of cheesy metaphor or whatever, I'm talking about process. I'm not talking about outcome. Mm Mm-hmm. Right, but like what we've been talking about is like is is what it feels like to make poems, and the space that you need to put yourself in. I feel like to make poems on, in some way, because if you're if you're sitting there thinking to yourself, oh, I have to make a poem that like follows all the rules or or or, sa- or says what it's supposed to say or whatever, I feel like you won't. That that's the space more of prose writing, I guess. Right. Right. But but paradoxically, I think when you allow yourself that kind of freedom, and I write about this in this chapter on political poetry, you know, which is kind of in the middle of the book. Uh, I write a there's a chapter where I write about Mary Baraka and W. S. Merwin and Audre Lorde, and you know, I'm trying to show that like by giving yourself up to that that attention to the material of language you find your way to a moral place or mm. you can't find your way to a, a more a moral place, not a moral, a mm-hmm. moral place or an ethical place. And that that is, you know, it's, it's a kind of something you can't necessarily control. It's something you discover. Um, but it's, 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 I've seen it time and time again in other people's poems and in my own poems. So I'm not, I'm not saying that like poems should just be like this decorative, like pile of language, you know, that has no, significance Mm -hmm. i'm talking about process more than i am end product yeah if that makes sense i don't know if i'm making sense or not but i'm just like trying to there's a lot of moving parts in this conversation and and (laughs) and so and part of the the part that you quoted is is what i'm talking about i'm pretty sure that that part is in earlier in the book when i'm talking about my own the the time that i sort of started to realize that i was a poet so i'm talking about more from my own experience of like hey this is this is what I started to do with language. It was different from what I was doing with language in other spaces in my life or whatever. And that that is somehow related to poems, but it's not necessarily about like what the poem would feel like to a reader. Yeah. Although I understand that the, the importance of freedom for the poet to feel as if they have that kind of freedom, but you have another quote that I loved, which was, uh, Paul Valery, and it was, a poem is really a kind of machine for producing the poetic state of mind by means of words. And I kind of felt like, I mean, going back to the Auden poem that we were talking about, I kind of felt like I was encouraged by Auden to read it with a sort of poetic state of mind, uh-huh. if that makes sense. You know, that sure. it was, so it, it almost seems like there's this this process where the poet is is free to to be liberated from, I guess, duties, or I think you you quote Wittgenstein as saying it's the language game of giving information. And then it goes into the words, and then readers who are sensitive to the possibilities of language and who come to it with sort of an open mind can kind of 
get a glimpse into the emotion or the ideas that the poet was putting into the poem. Yeah. Well, okay. So there's two things there. The, the second, the part you just said, I would just say, you know, if, if a poem is really working for a reader, they sort of get caught up in the gears of it almost. Mm, mm-hmm. And that's, that's like really what the, what the, um, what the, uh, you know, I just, for some reason I thought of that great, um, is it modern times that Charlie Chaplin yeah, yeah, gets but... caught up in the big machine? <laughs> um, but, but the, but that's the, me um, reading, uh, the wasteland. That's how I feel when I read poems, you know, it's like, and, and it's a, it's a process of, and, a cha- and it's, and it's a feeling that you get from reading the poem and it happens over the course of reading the poem. It's not like you're not standing outside it, looking into it, sort of admiring it or being like, well, that's fascinating or whatever. I mean, it's more like you get sucked into it, into it, I think. Yeah. Almost. And, the, and, the, and then that's the, that's what that Valerie quote about. Um, you know, that the poem being that Valerie quote has like a kind of quality of circularity to it. It's like almost circular reasoning, but it's like, it's just basically saying the poem's a machine that makes you feel like you're experiencing poetry. Yeah. And it's almost, it's like this tautology that's very true feeling, I think. And so, so there's that part of it that's from the point of view like again more of a reader and um that's what it feels to me like when i read a great when i read a poem that i'm really connecting with you know um and what was it you mentioned you mentioned something else besides the besides the valerie quote i can't remember oh you mentioned the Wittgenstein, yeah which is so interesting because god that's like he that 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 quote that you is so fascinating because he just basically calls he says you know that that giving information he calls it a language game. And, and in doing so, he just sort of identifies this whole thing we take for granted that language does right. as just being one of the things that language can do. Yeah. Poems do a different thing. Yeah. They're, they're playing a different language game. It's so, uh, I remember reading that and thinking, wow, that is exactly right. In the same way that, you know, if, if again, just to use an analogy, I mean, if you're talking about pain, I mean, sometimes painters are painting houses and sometimes they're painting canvases, you know, and I know that house paint and paint oil paint aren't the same thing, but they can be actually, you know, people paint canvases with the house paint. Sometimes you're using it for one thing and sometimes you're using it for another. And the same thing is true for language. Sometimes you're using it for one thing and sometimes you're using it for another. And my job in this book was to try to talk about the other thing you can use language for. Hmm. And you give yeah. some some beautiful examples. The one I wasn't familiar with was from uh, Brenda Hillman, and it oh. described the daffodils as lamps of pity. Yeah, that's a kind of thing you can only say if you're feeling pretty free with language. I think. And even though uh, you know, I would never have thought that. I I don't think you'd find that in a, a dictionary definition. It felt so true and so much truer than any you know, description of the flowers. It fit the the mood of the poem perfectly. And uh, it's just a beautiful That's little That's kind phrase. of what they look like. I mean, when you yeah. go look at them, I mean, I'm not a big, I'm not, I'm one of those people who always forgets like which flower is which <laughs> and like what they look like and everything for the most right. part. But I went, remember reading that and then looking at a picture of a daffodil and thinking, oh, that is what they look like. Yeah. They do look like that. So, so there's a kind of accuracy also that's important. Um, but I think that accuracy can only be found like instinctively. I think I said when I'm talking about those poems by Brenda, I said, I, I think in a different part, I mentioned the use of her word corridor. Yeah. I posit, you know, I don't know. I haven't asked her. I don't know if this is true, but I, that, that, that choice of that word was instinctive for her, but that it, the reason why it makes sense in the poem or was kept in the poem or survives in the poem, whatever word you want to use for it, is because it resonates into the poem. Mm. She could have said something else that would not have resonated into the poem, and then she probably would have been unsatisfied with it as a poet and looked for a different word. And who knows, maybe that was the eighth word she chose, or maybe it was the first. Yeah. I don't know. But yeah. But it's kind of it's trial it's a lot of it's trial and error as a poet, a lot of it's instinct, a lot of it's just messing around um and it and i i talk sometimes with my students about this um there's there's a term in literature called the intentional fallacy Mm -hmm. but i use it in a different i i i think the way that i'm saying it isn't what it usually means which is just the intentional fallacy what i mean by that is that when the poem is done 
it seems so inevitable and it seems like every choice yeah. was made consciously and it seems that 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 every you know that everything was planned out but in fact it's not true mm-hmm. i've never met a poet who who doesn't cross things out and make wrong turns and fix things and change things around or whatever and then in the end it just seems like it all was meant to be but it wasn't i mean i guess yeah. maybe life is like Right. <laughs> or or someone could point something out to you as a poet and it maybe was something you hadn't even noticed about your poem. Oh, it happens all the time. It's very mortifying. <laughs> <laughs> it must be satisfying though. There must be times when you have a line or or you you know that you know you chose the word corridor or you chose the old masters and you know that it's just the perfect fit and you're going to you must feel like, um, well, that's not one I'm going to look at later and try to cross out. I know I found I, the perfect word for this. Yeah, it happens all the time, and I'm sure it happens to lots of poets. And very often those choices, if someone comes back to you later and talks to you about them, they'll have all kinds of ideas and reasons why you chose yeah. them that you would have never thought of yourself. But that's the whole point, is yeah. that poets are, the, the talent that poets have is that they just remember in some deep atavistic part of themselves like the meanings of those words and their provenances and their connections and they have this instinctive i mean i have an almost mystical belief in this i mean it may be plain old mystical belief in this that you know language is i mean language is the collective knowledge of our species i mean Mm -hmm. we 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 i mean this isn't my idea i mean this is an idea that you know vico jean Battista vico vico and many others have talked about, but like this, it's language is our collective knowledge. And on a practical sense, it's just true because every single word that we use means what it means because all kinds of people before us decided it meant that and not something else. Right. So when we use the word, we're, we, we really are literally, you know, resting on or, or, or benefiting from or whatever you want to say, like the, the kind of collective decision making of yeah. people who use language. So, so it's a very powerful historical, um, cultural, historical material language. We're not aware of those things consciously for the most part, but, but we, but we know that it, we know it yeah. somewhere. And poets are just people who know it, have a more, have a deeper sense of those things, I think. And it just cracks me up when I was, you know, people say like, you know, they, they think that what makes somebody a poet is that they have like. They're more sensitive than other people. Emotional. It's like it's like no. I mean, most of the poets I know are monsters. You know, they're, they're completely like they're completely jerks, and they're not more emotional or sensitive or, or or whatever than other people. I mean, and it's it's that they it's this it's it's it has to do with their relationship to language. Yeah. So it's not just the uh, that a cloudy day will will make you feel more despondent than other people. It's oh, that. God. <laughs> Well, that's well, that's an idea that comes from Wordsworth, you know, in his preface to the lyrical ballads. I mean, he says that, you know, basically like that. That's that a poem is, you know, an emotion recollected, you know, an emotional experience basically recollected in tranquility. I think right. that's what he says. And, and so there's that. I think that's that, that idea comes from the romantics that like the poets walk around like they're these vibrating antennas of sensitivity or whatever, and then they sort of. But that's that's just kind of. Why is, is that more true for poets than for prose writers? Like as right. po- the prose writers I know, I mean, I would say like the prose writers I know are usually more interested in the human, mm. you know, the mechanics of human interaction and the like character and destiny and like, right. you know, landscape and sociological matters. That, that's been my experience. I mean, but like, cause they're, cause that's what they really write about. But poets are, you know, really obsessive about language. Would you say that poets are like the caretakers of language as well? Do they? Do you feel that as an obligation that you need to get words right and that to encourage your students to get words right? I don't feel that as like an ethical obligation. Although I suppose there's a, you know, maybe that is a good like side effect. But I think it's just sort of more required for making interesting and worthwhile poems mm, mm-hmm. i'm more like that's sort of the i mean i think that as a society and as a whatever as a species we have a big problem with that and that if we were more accurate with our language and more attentive to to what we were saying and less susceptible to just lies you know we would be we yeah we'd be a lot better off for sure so so in that sense like i think maybe there's a good side effect yeah i mean that's sort of like this sort of 
you know, argument for studying or reading poetry, you know, that's sort of more like kind of, I don't know, so social or societal. It's like, well, we have to be better close readers. You know, we yeah. have to be better, better readers of situation. And, and there's nothing, you know, there's nothing quite like the sort of small area of, of a poetic text to focus one's attention and focus. And, you know, I, I love being in a, being in a classroom with some students and just really honing in on like a short poem and really digging into it. I think, I think there's no better tool for teaching close reading. So that, that, that alone, you know, just as like a teacher of, you know, I'm talking about being like a kind of like a teacher of undergraduates or, you know, whatever, just sort of like a humanities teacher. Like, I think that that's a pretty, pretty great thing, but that doesn't have that much to do with like writing good poems. Hmm. You know, maybe it has something to do with it, but it's not like really the main deal. Yeah. Um, Okay. We're wrapping up here, but I have a surprise bonus question for you. All right, I'm ready. You ready? Okay. It's not a math question. Is it? <laughs> it is. I'm going to have to use. A, I'm gonna have to call an outside authority. <laughs> well, that's interesting. We didn't really talk about that, but that that was one of the things that I uh, I felt like you would be um, a good person to to advocate against is uh, the formalities of meter, where you're sitting and counting up syllables and sometimes poetry writing, I think can be thought of as very mechanical and mm -hmm. that, you know, you have to uh, fit things into boxes and, and that kind of thing. But um, I'm glad to hear well, that. That's, fun. that's sort of fun, like puzzle making and like, yeah. I kind of, and I love great formal poetry. I, I adore it. I mean, absolutely. I'm not, I'm not personally, I can do it, but it's not like, it's not, I don't, it's not really what I'm really good at. I just, I, I'm more of a free verse person personally, yeah. but I have no, I don't have a, like a, an, an ax to grind in that argument, really. You talk about doing a sort of in, apprenticeship where you worked your way through all the forms. I think you were getting it out of the back of a book or something. Um, yeah, so, so it was, yeah, that was during that time. We, we were talking about this earlier, like the, um, that time period when I was first starting to write poetry when I was a cow. Um, I bought the Norton Anthology of Poetry um, at, Co at the aforementioned yeah. um, erst erstwhile Cody's, um, and I. Um, so you wrote a villanelle and a yeah, like in the back, yeah, yeah, that, uh, yeah, and everything, you know, saw all the different kinds of sonnets, <laughs> yeah, and 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 you know, heroic couplets and Alexander's, like every, you know, everything they list list, and then they have like a little. I mean, I don't know if I haven't looked at it in a while, but they have like little page numbers that are like you know villanelle, and then they give you like a page you go look at it and you can see the pattern or whatever and then try your own or something it, yeah so i did that for about a year that first year i was writing poetry and it was you know i didn't write anything good but it was it was it was it was cool it was a cool thing to do yeah um you were yeah. learning you're learning your craft and learning your art i was bare at the very 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 beginning of that process of learning it but it was it, it turned out that it was a good way to start yeah for sure yeah and now you say I secretly think my poems do rhyme, which is great. So what, maybe explain that for the listeners. Yeah, I mean, I talk about, um, but what I mean is that they rhyme conceptually. You know, the yeah. idea is rhyme to me is a larger idea of just like of the chiming of concepts that you wouldn't ordinarily put together. I mean, that's the pleasure of rhyme is you like, you find a sonic correspondence uh -huh. that so that also has a kind of conceptual correspondence. Yeah. Only have the sonic correspondence. You end up with like very silly yep. rhymes that don't do anything, you know, but like, but, but a great rhyme has that like kind of the words sound the same and they kind of link in meaning somehow. Yeah. But this, but so that, so my, my, what I'm talking about there in, the, in that chapter, which is again, a lot about first starting to write poetry is, 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 uh, that, I realized that, that that sonic rhyme, that literal rhyme, what we call rhyming, you know, moon in June or something, is just a kind of subset of a larger um, way that language kind of echoes with itself and creates new meanings and finds new correspondences, and that that's kind of inherent to the poetic enterprise. Oh, well, that's a great part of the book, and there's so many... so many good passages in the book. I, what you've described today has been so rich with... Uh information there may be people who think they've heard 
you know, why do I need to read the book now? But I would encourage all the readers to, all my listeners to run out and buy it because there is so much there. But let me get to the surprise bonus question. Ready. Okay. After falling asleep with a beloved volume of poetry on your chest, you awake from unsettling dreams to find yourself on a panel with several others like yourself. A host informs you that your job is to advocate for poetry as a glorious expression of what humanity is capable of. A woman is on the panel whose specialty is classical music, and she names Beethoven's Third Symphony as the work that best represents the triumph of the human spirit in her field. A film advocate named Citizen Kane. The painter next to you chooses Picasso's Guernica. And now it's your turn. What poem do you choose and why? Ode to a Nightingale by Keats. Oh. <laughs> um, I think it's oh. just, you, you, I mean, it's just, it, it has everything in it. Oh. It, has, it has, it sounds yeah. fantastic. Yep. It's very, you know, moving. It has, it, it's, it's, you know, about a central kind of human dilemma, mortality, obviously. It's um, summons up and continually troubles itself with the interaction between human beings in the natural world. It's it's honest, I think. Yeah. It's pretty direct. I mean, it's written in, you know, like it's got, its language is a little bit fancy, but it's not, it's very easy to understand. I mean, if you just sort of just slow down a bit. Yep. And I just think it's, you know, I just think it's a perfect poem. That's a beautiful and, uh, pick. Not bad for someone. <laughs> not bad for someone who was twenty-four. No, not bad for <laughs> someone who's twenty-four. I mean, it's it's. I don't know that you're we're ever going to have we're ever going to find another person who was so gifted. Mm. Um, I mean, I think that just in terms of poetry, um, I just he had the gift. He had everything, you know, and he. And he uh, he made the most of his time on Earth. That's for sure. Yeah, I guess on his gravestone it says, uh, "Here lies one whose name was writ in water." I think yeah. that's it. Yeah, and that's but uh, in, in his very last letter he wrote his it signs off by saying, uh, "I always made an awkward bow." I think that's his last. <laughs> that's the way he signed his. Last. I mean, he's, everything he said was amazing. You know, it's like it's yeah. just I love Keats. He's he's you know he's. He's one of my one of my big favorites. Oh, I may have to do a show on Keats. I don't think we've oh, done yeah. that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, you can bring me back for a cameo if you want. Okay. Yeah, we'll do it. Okay. Well, Matthew Zapruder, thank you so much for for joining me. The book is Why Poetry, and and as I said, I think everyone, all my listeners, I think would enjoy it. It is a, a beautiful book, and it really uh, is. I found it very inspiring, and it made me want to run out and get some Wallace Stevens and some Marianne Moore, and uh, now I've got John Keats to put back on my shelf. And it's uh, if your goal was to try to inspire uh, at least one reader to read more poetry, your mission has been accomplished. Well, that is a really that really makes me happy to hear that. Thank you so much, and thanks for all the great questions and conversation. Okay, there we go. Wasn't that great? So smart and so interesting. You can get Matthew's book, Why Poetry, at Amazon or wherever you buy your books. Trust me when I say it is worth the read. Another one of those books that lovers of literature will all enjoy. And I didn't get the chance to talk about this, but there's a personal side to the book, too. It's full of poetry, arguments, and theories. But it's also full of Matthew's journey. It's full of poetry and full of heart. Okay, that's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. Mike Palindrome and Kafka are just around the corner. So subscribe today if you haven't already. And I'm trying to reanimate the old Twitter account at a new handle, the Jack Wilson. So stop by and say hello if you get the chance. It will inspire me to do more and to do better. Maybe you can tell me your favorite poem. Would you have chosen... Ode to a Nightingale, or something else. Let me know at the Jack Wilson. That's the Jack Wilson, and Jack is spelled with an E. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, 
and we'll see you next time.